Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. So my favorite film in the Indiana Jones series... And there are only three of those movies, by the way, not four. My favorite film in the Indiana Jones series is The Last Crusade. And uh, it's a movie in which uh, Indiana and his father, played by Sean Connery, are, that was my best impression, um, uh, are after the Holy Grail. They're looking for the Holy Grail uh, uh, somewhere in Africa, evidently. And you may know that the Holy Grail is the uh, cup that was supposedly used by Jesus at the Last Supper and also was used to catch his blood at the cross and, and the medieval lores that if you drank from that cup, you would have eternal life. Well, in the final scene of the film, and it came out in 1992, so I don't think this is any, like, spoiler. Um, Indiana, his father, some Nazis, and a very aged member of the Knights Templar uh, were in some African temple in which there were hundreds and hundreds of grails displayed, most of them gold and bejeweled. And this very aged member of the Knights Templar said to all gathered, the true grail shall give you life and the false grail shall take it from you. And the thought is that you had to choose the right grail, but there were lots of grails, and so your chance of getting the right one was you know, pretty minimal. Anyway, there's this one scene where one of the Nazis is so enamored by the most beautiful grail among the grails that he gravitates toward it, this bejeweled, ruby-encrusted thing, and said, certainly, this is the cup of the King of Kings. And he takes it, fills it with water, drinks from it, and then looks fairly fine for about three seconds. And then he twitches, and all of a sudden, he loses all his flesh, turns into a chattering skeleton, then falls apart like dust on the floor. And so the member of the Knights Templar looks at the pile of dust and says, he chose poorly. (laughs) A very memorable scene, maybe even more of a memorable parable unto us that some of our glittering grails in life promise eternal life and happiness, but they only bring ruination. And ham-handed segue to the letter of James, but not really. Uh, The letter of James is directly about this question of which is the right grail and which are the wrong grails. We've entered into a sermon series throughout the book of James called Integration, How Real Faith Connects with Real Life. And in our text, James warns us very starkly about the false grails, which can become a source of demise in our own personal lives, and the true grail, which is the source of life. So I'm going to be speaking about the source of demise as well as the source of life from James' perspective. Now, a brief word about context, and then verse 12 mentions the context. James begins his letter speaking very richly about trials because he's writing to people who are experiencing homelessness and acute duress, at least many of them. And now he brings up the theme of temptations. Why would he do this? Because if you are beset by numerous life-altering trials in your life, you will just a biological urge and also a spiritual flaw, you will seek and I will seek to find some modicum of cheap comfort to take the edge off the pain of the trial. 
And so temptation looks all the more tempting when you are being thwarted in numerous ways by life. And so James connects these ideas of trials and now temptation. And so I want to speak about the source of demise first, and I want to focus on verses 13 uh, through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. That may be sounding like an odd comment to you, uh, but just for what it's worth, James wants to clarify something right away. Our temptations, that is the lures and enticements to sin, are not created by God and are not handed to you by God for your own personal destruction. He is drawing a very thick, black, sharpie line between temptation and the heavens. Why? Because that's the whole biblical story. Throughout the Bible, God is at war with sin, always attempting to uproot sin and degradation from our experience. So it makes absolutely no sense for the God who is at war with sin to entice you and lure you in those vile practices. In Scripture, it is quite true, by the way, there are occasions where God tests faith, but he tests faith in order to make it a more durable faith. He does not tempt people into abandoning their faith. It would be contrary to the divine nature. Why is James saying this? I have no idea. I don't know what was occurring in his context that made him address this question, but something was there. And I, I hear something similar, a similar causation to, the, to this line of thinking in some theological circles. There's an errant perspective that very few Christians believe now, but an errant perspective which misunderstands God's sovereignty. That is, people that not only believe that God is in control, which we all do, but that God also forces everything to happen, including evil and temptation that he pushes those things ahead and wants them to occur, forces evil to occur for a variety of reasons. No, we believe in God's active and permissive wills, and some things he permits but does not force. After he establishes that, God is not the problem. You have many problems, but God ain't one of them. Since God is not the author of our demise, James wants to clarify who is the author of our demise. And this is where he gets downright personal, rude, and offensive. He doesn't blame God. He doesn't even blame the devil. Instead, he blames us. He blames us. In order to make his point, James employs a ghastly image of an evil pregnancy. It's like something out of a Stephen King novel. This is what James is saying in his letter. Everybody here was born with sort of a spiritual womb, if you will, and evil can grow in it. This is what he says. I invite you to follow along in verse 14. And notice the imagery of pregnancy and development. Verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So there are five stages of how depravity clutches us, right? Five stages. The first is desire. Another word that could be used is the passions. Uh, this word, by the way, is almost uniformly negative in the New Testament because it's shorthand for like disordered affections. Uh, the things that we glom onto too strongly with too tight a grip, right? 
He says that we are tempted by our own desires. There's something errant in how we love. We love the wrong thing or love the right thing in the wrong way, and it ends up hurting us. Uh, and I think to some degree this is non-intuitive that we would trip ourselves up. I think many people assume that our downfall, if there is one, is out there, not in here. It's in the political party that I disagree with. It's in the professor that I loathe. It's in my roommate who won't clean up her stuff. Uh, it's in my spouse who won't get counseling. But it's out there, not in here. Um, and James is saying, no, you are tempted by your own desires. I mean, it is quite true that there are lots of algorithms online that are trying to sell you things in order to entice your greed. It is quite true that there are many attractive people out there over whom you could lust, right? Um, but they're not the principal problem, James says. By the way, you may know this. I actually didn't realize it was occurring because I didn't grow up in this tradition, but there were... There was like within evangelical subculture in like the 1990s, there was what was called, or at least what is now labeled modesty culture. Do you know, you kind of know what I'm talking? I don't know. Anyway, it was not my life, but it was the lives of many people. So modesty culture was this thought where um, we need to be more careful as Christians with what we wear so we don't trigger other people to inappropriate naughty thinking, right? But a lot of that guilt was placed on young women. Like don't wear provocative clothing or you will cause men to stumble. Now, I have nothing against modesty, but the problem is that took the, the volition away from men to like get a grip and stop being a psycho, right? Instead, it just blamed women and men were kind of off the hook. He's like, well, they can't help themselves. The problem is outside me, it's not me. Well, James is saying the problem is in within you. There's some external trigger and your desire pushes you to glom on to whatever that is. Now, how do we know if a particular desire within ourselves is disordered? It's a great question that I, I don't have a great answer to, but somebody else did, so I just stole it. His name is Kevin DeYoung, Presbyterian minister. He, he offers this litmus test that we, we can say to ourselves whenever we're experiencing a given desire. He asks, can I thank God for this feeling? Isn't that good? Can I thank God for this feeling? And if I can't, it might mean that the origin place of this desire is not, in fact, godly. So that's the first thing, desire within ourselves. The second thing, conception. James says, then desire when it has conceived. Again, very physical, sensual imagery, right? Just as physical desire in humans often leads to a literal pregnancy, desire can advance in a stage and become conceived. It forms sort of a spiritual zygote, if you will, and begins to have a life of its own within the self. Now, in a very typical pregnancy, and of course, we have women who are pregnant here today, in a typical pregnancy, a microscopic zygote that the eye cannot detect can have immense power over a woman's entire body. In fact, you may know about this, this lovely little experience called morning sickness, which my wife experienced with all three of our children for months on end. So much power from those little children who were smaller than a dime, right? to control her in that way and to and make her life for several months a little less pleasant. But what, he, what he's saying here is when desire is conceived, when it starts to grow within the self, it becomes more and more obsessive and demanding and pushes us toward eventual physicalizing or satisfying of that inward desire. So it's desire, then conception. But then there's another stage, birth. 
James writes, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Now, just as a newborn child becomes external to the mother's body, so too our internal conceived obsessions get to the point where they are expressed and externalized on the outside of us. Inward resentment becomes outward gossip. Inward lust becomes an outward affair. Inward jealousy becomes outward thievery. This is why, by the way, when we confess our sins in in the service tonight, you'll notice there's a progression in the language. We have confessed, we confess we have sinned against you in what? In thought, then word, then deed. Well, there's a progression there. It begins on the inside, and then we start talking about it, and then we end up doing it. That's the thought. And so it's birthed into the external world. And as if that's not bad enough, fourthly, this born reality grows. And it says, when sin is fully grown, sin is not content to stay a newborn. Sin will eat and eat and eat until it grows larger and larger and becomes more formidable. By the way, Spurgeon, the great preacher, uh, once said that if you're dealing with sin in your life, it's very easy to pull out a sapling from the ground, but not a fully grown oak. Because by the time it's an oak tree, you don't have the strength to pull it out of the ground anymore. Because that's what sin does. It just grows and grows. And then lastly, death. He says, when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. Now, children are born in order to live, but sin is born in order to bring the opposite of life, which is death. So in other words, the goal of temptation, the goal of the lure, is not for you to sin. Sin is a means to an end. The goal of temptation is for you to die. Ultimately, the lure of evil exists to bring you into a place of complete subjection so that you in your full humanity would wither. The goal of temptation is annihilation. And so James communicates the source of our demise. And he says, I want you to notice it doesn't begin with death. It begins inside you in hidden recesses of the soul. It sometimes begins so imperceptibly that you can barely see it. It's nuanced, it's crafty, it's subtle, like a serpent, one might say. Remember from the Greek myth Icarus, the proud young princeling figure who decided uh, that he wanted to soar the heights, and so he constructed uh, wings of feathers and wax until he got too close to the sun. They melted and he plummeted to his death. It was the heart of the prideful Icarus that melted long before his wings did. It was in the recesses of the soul. I have a friend who was a very uh, uh, fancy person who was in charge of an incredibly effective ministry who uh, had to resign because it was claimed and then verified that he had had numerous extramarital affairs for many, many, many years. Uh, I spoke with him uh, years after he was caught and stepped down, and uh, it was a heartbreaking exchange because he was so devastated, and he's never really recovered. I I said, "Do do you know how it began? And he said, of course, but I didn't know until after the fact. He said, I was just really lonely. I was lonely in my marriage. I wasn't really connecting with my kids. People in ministry loved me because I was effective. But they loved my effectiveness more than me. 
And so they didn't really care about me and my own personal life. And he said, so I did a horrible thing. I found other connections. And the, the sad thing is, he said, about those other connections is they did help for a little while. They helped me feel less alone for a few minutes. And then I was right back to the loneliness. And I had to seek out this drug again and again and again until it brought about my public disgrace. Well, maybe you can't relate to that story in your own life, but you can relate to that impulse, right? You can relate to something in your life that started off so small and imperceptible but became a large problem over time, something that was once hidden but then became magnified. Somewhere you lost the path of God, and you got on some other path, and it steered you in the direction of death. By the way, Meister Eckhart, the medieval monastic genius, said this about God and life and sin. He says, if you have lost God, this is so pithy, but very helpful. If you have lost God, go back to the place where you lost him. Where was the, where was the veering off point? And usually it has to do with some unmet need on the inside that we tried to meet in a way that ended up bringing us great damage. Some desire within us that glommed on to the wrong solution. And so James talks about the source of our demise. But then... He steers away from that and talks about the source of life, the true grail, the source of life. This is, I'm going to read verse 13 again. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot tempt with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Skip down to verse 17. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So what is James saying? The problem that we all have resides within. The solution that we all need resides without. And this is a complete reversal of how our current day understands salvation. Our current cultural moment has many pluses and perks, but one of its detriments and blind spots is it really believes salvation has to do with self-discovery discovering who you truly are, and loving and affirming yourself as you truly are. The problem with that, of course, is the self is mixed. Some of you, some bits of you are lovely. Other bits, not so much. And, and some bits, you know, might go to, <laughs> I was going to say might go to prison someday, but you know what I mean. Like, it's just, it's a mixed situation, right? And so we need a solution that transcends the complicated neurotic self. And that's what we have in this passage. Because James is saying we are not left only with ourselves and our own wayward desires. desires. Why? Because this is God's world. And God is interspliced into God's own world to rescue sinners from themselves. And unlike the self and its desires, God is 100% consistently and stubbornly good completely. He's the only one who is. Listen to James' consistent language regarding the divine instead of the divided self. He is the father of lights, the only time that expression is used in scripture, meaning he has an unassailable character that is undimmed by self-interest and self-obsession. And he is the author of every good and perfect gift that God, out of God's own nature, does not offer us damaged goods to bring us further ruination. 
Instead, he gives out of the source which is himself. And the ultimate evidence of this is not a beautiful sunset or your husband or wife or the fact that you had a nice vacation this summer. The ultimate evidence of God's goodness is Jesus. He gives you of himself, literally. He gives you his only begotten son to do for you what you could not do for yourself. And James says, in him there is no variation or change, meaning Jesus Christ is the same today, yesterday, and forever. That God is not moody. God is not Jekyll and Hyde. God uh, is not undependable. Uh, God will always and only be consistently good for your betterment and salvation. Now, I say that because I have this weird impulse in me, and maybe you have it in you. Whenever I'm in a crisis... I am sometimes hesitant to pray. It's not because I'm lazy, though sometimes I am, but because I'm afraid that if I pray, God will make it worse. Like if I really lay this out before the Lord, he'll experiment more on me to break me down even further. Like he's an ogre and has a club and he's not done clubbing me yet because I haven't yet learned my lesson. Now maybe I'm alone in this church ever having felt that, but I don't think I am. I have friends who do. I have friends who feel that way. Well, um, friends, I want to say this to all of us and say this to myself. That understanding, or God's going to make it worse when we come to him, God didn't whisper that thought into our ear. That thought comes from a much, much warmer climate. Um, it is. It's satanic because it goes against the word. Jesus says this, when you ask, you who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to you who ask him? If, if you ask him for bread, he's not going to give you a bucket of snakes. He'll give you bread. That's what James is saying. He's not here to hurt you, you know. That's something you're pasting onto God from your own experience of bad authority figures but it's not God. That's a different thing. I also want you to note in this passage about God being our source of life, notice the hint of birth imagery reappearing. This is verse 16. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. He brought us forth, similar to birthing imagery, but this time it's positive. Whereas sin gives birth ultimately to death, God brings us forth for the purposes of life. And notice how strong James' language here is. Of his will, he brought us forth. What does that mean? Your salvation is a miracle. It is a miracle grander than water to wine, more grand than the parting of the Red Sea in Egypt. It's his will. It's his will that we have been brought forth. Um, it's an act of God upon your person. Salvation is a miracle. Also notice, he brings us forth by something, by the word of truth, the word of truth. That is a phrase that is used four times in the New Testament, and it always refers to the proclamation of the gospel, of Christ and him crucified. That's how you were brought forth by God, because somebody poured into your earballs, so to speak, a message about Jesus and all the things that Jesus did for you when you had nothing going for you. That's the only thing that raises the dead. And that's what was communicated to these people. And he says, that was a miracle. Of his will, he brought you forth by the preaching of the word of truth. 
Now, I mention all of this uh, to say something grand about James, our author. Many people errantly believe that James, because of what he says in chapter two, two about works and justification, we'll get into that later, because of what he says there, most people believe, or many people we believe, that James is kind of semi-Pelagian, if you know what that means. Pelagius was an ascetic who lived a long time ago in England, of course. Um, I don't know why I said of course, but he did live there. Um, and, uh, and he taught that human beings are essentially salvaged by God if they try really hard. And if they prove to God they mean it, God saves them because of their virtue, improvement, uh, incremental change, so forth. Well, that view didn't fly very well, so they invented like a partial Pelagianism called semi-Pelagianism, which is, yes, God loves you, he thinks you're really neat, uh, Jesus did die for you, but he expects you to do your part too. And if you don't cooperate with him, you're dropped into the hot place. So you have to do your part, God does his, but it'll work out, maybe. That's semi-Pelagianism. Well, whatever James is, he is certainly not semi-Pelagian because he says that it is God who brought you forth of his own will through the word of truth. Salvation, from James' perspective, is a miracle. So this is, this is what we've been given in a room, in a world filled with deadly bejeweled grails that promise the fulfillment of our desires. We have a singular source of goodness and light who is 100% dependable today, tomorrow, until the end of time. And so the source of our demise, desire that leads to death, the source of our life, the one who is the father of lights who sent his son into the world and who saves us via miracles. Now, I wanna conclude now by returning to my Indiana Jones metaphor regarding grails. Because in order to survive in the cruel terrain of trials and temptations, uh, we need to know the source of demise and the source of life. Um, so let me speak about glittering grails for a minute. Friends, uh, to put it directly, beware of what you love. Beware of what you love. Not just what you hate or despise. Beware of what you long for, desire, hunger after. Most of those things seem rather innocent. Glittering grails always do, just like they did in the garden whenever there was that lovely tree and the serpent said, all it offers is wisdom. Don't you want to be wise? Glittering grails, what is it for you? A frugal life without any debt? Loyalty to a politician who vows to save our nation? Noticeably obedient children, not just obedient children, the children that are noticeably obedient to other people, theological purity, implementing the good life and living in the good life, walking the golden mean, public respect, reputation for being the best teacher, having a perfectly attentive partner, a 4.0 GPA, being a mother who can perfectly balance work and family and have it all, being the opposite of your father, having a sensual life that is entirely satisfying, or accomplishing every one of your ambitions. We have to be wary of what we love, because sometimes we love things too much. Augustine famously put it this way, follow the love, for it is there that you will find failure. Follow what people love too much, and it is there where you will find their most desperate failures. 
There is a common mythos in, uh, in the world these days, and it's something like this. If we listen to our own hearts and give our own hearts exactly what our own hearts want, they will become calm and satisfied. The Christian task, by contrast, is to trust Jesus Christ more than our own hearts. Because our own hearts are beautiful and utterly corrupt at the same time. Jesus Christ is only beautiful. And when our hearts deceive us, to quote St. John, God is stronger than our hearts. And so we trust in Jesus more than in the self. He is the only grail uh, that does not let us down and the only grail that ultimately satisfies. That brings me to point two. So point one, beware of what you love. Point two, go to the true grail that brings life. Because there was only one man who was never compromised. Only one man who said yes to the right things and no to the wrong things. Only one man who defied the desires of this world. Frank Lake was a famous British psychoanalyst who uh, was once asked in a public seminar, have you ever met anyone who was entirely non-neurotic? Frank Lake paused, stroked his chin and said, no, but I have heard that there was one once, referring to Jesus. The book of Hebrews puts it this way. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Jesus began and concluded his public ministry with episodes of temptation. The devil tempts him in the wilderness to pole vault over the cross and just have the glory and the nations without the pain. Jesus says no. Later, he comes back at that opportune moment disguised in the voices of those who scream at him when he's writhing on the cross saying, come down, come down from the cross. And by staying up there, he says no to that temptation. Jesus, unlike us, says no. And in the odd and wondrous mystery of God, the no of Christ to temptation counts for you. It counts for you, not just for him, but for you. This is what St. Paul says in Romans, for by one man's obedience, many were made righteous. All it took was the God man saying no and meaning no when temptation came knocking. And that no counts for all of us. Many are made righteous through his act of righteousness. So Jesus' no to evil counts for you. For every time you lost your nerve, for every time you were tsunamied by your own desires, for every time you hurt people who to this day have not recovered, his mercy and his integrity counts for you. And so this whole sermon is a way, a long way of saying, friends, call upon the name of the Lord. Don't call upon your own name, your own strength, your own capacity to overcome. Uh, don't trust yourself. Trust in the one who did overcome. Throw all your weight on the man of Calvary. Call upon the name of the Lord. Go to the external solution. Because tonight you will be handed in miniature that external solution. You're going to be handed your own personal grail tonight. We come to this communion grail with all of our troubles, our disordered affections, our failure to overcome temptation, and we will learn yet again that Christ overcame. 
and he overcame for you. And this is why the minister will say the blood of Christ given for you. He overcame for you and it counts. Or to quote the hymn that I love so much from the 18th century, well may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all and thousands more. My Jesus knoweth none. They've all been dealt with squarely and permanently. Christ, friends, has definitively saved you from sin and annihilation, and he gives all of us retraining and strength to say no so that we can live in fullness of life. So tonight, may you know his complete and audacious exoneration and forgiveness, and may evil lose all of its power in your life. Amen. They took your life. They could not.